0: Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valibeitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I'm
1: I'm very honored to be here. I'm grateful. uh, Rav Shmuley and I know each other when he was in Los Angeles and I'm been a big fan of his ever since so um, and I'm grateful that you're all here so my topic is um, prisoner rehabilitation reentry and um, uh, addiction and um, recovery so I, I hope that I'm going to cover all those things
2: <laughs>
1: uh, the one thing about when I speak, I want you to know that you can interrupt me. I know what I'm talking about. Well, I think I know what I'm talking about, and I can always come back. So if you have a question or a comment or something like that, and you don't want to hold it because I have ADD, so, you know, when it's, um, when I have something to say, I, oh, oh. And so if somebody else feels that way, don't, you won't hurt my feelings if you interrupt me. I just want to say that to begin with. So, I wanted to start this um, by laying out um, a couple of the, a few of the issues that that are facing us today. And um, they're issues which I have been intimately involved in both personally and professionally um, most of my life, to be quite truthful. Addiction. Be it to drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, food, even the addiction to need to be right <laughs> has been with us for so long. <laughs> Actually, I call it um, the the addiction to perfection. And it has driven us to so many, um, I believe, bad places. It all starts out as a solution. Even being a criminal starts out as a solution. And I think that... that um, We don't really understand what happens for for criminals, so I want to Explain it a little bit. I grew up a nice Jewish boy in Cleveland, Ohio. I was president of my USY group Bar Mitzvah, went to Hebrew school Confirmation, Hebrew high school, all of it And Ever since I can remember, I always felt like I was half a step off So even as I'm looking at all of you today and some of you I know, I believe that you guys all have life figured out and I'm still trying to get it figured out. Now that caused great psychic pain. The uh, um, Jewish tradition talks about Yetzer HaRa and Tov. Translated is the evil inclination and the good inclination. I, I um, learned this from Rabbi Harold Kushner. There's the earthly inclination and there's the divine inclination because we're set up We're set up in a war, an inner war, in that we have bodies, we have um, desires, we have minds, etc., and we have a soul, and the soul is given to us by God. So we're both, as Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel says, divine needs and divine reminders, and we're homo sapiens who have... um, different needs for pleasure and, and um, fulfillment and success. So for a criminal what happens is that we're hopeless. We feel like we can't get it right. The system is against us and we can't even, uh, um, we can't do it right. And that's true whether you're uh, um, Madoff or or you're Mark Borovitz. So, for me what happened was my father died when I was 14 and I started to hustle and um, Hustle stu- stolen merchandise sell sold, stolen merchandise. I got from the local mafia in Cleveland, Ohio In order to make money for my family That was what I told myself the truth is that I needed money to feel like I was something I Put net worth and self-worth together for all my life comparison and competitiveness has been a, a tremendous war and battle. For the criminal, what happens is that we lose that battle, we just say, hell with it. And we say we're going to get ours no matter what. Now, is it a moral failing? Absolutely. It's also what happens when the, the, um, the earthly inclination has too much power. The life of a criminal is somebody who knows that getting arrested in jail and prison is just part of the cost of the life. And I got into that life and interestingly enough the criminals that I hung out with they knew they were criminals and they didn't try and be anything else. So there was also a a sort of integrity with them as as strange as it sounds. Now I didn't have that much integrity because I tried to live in two worlds. I lived in the nice Jewish boy world, and I lived in the criminal world. And for many people that I've met, they've lived in the same place. Now, criminality is much more um, talked about and prevalent now, mainly because of of drugs and alcohol and gambling, because it's gotten people who normally wouldn't do things, uh, um, criminal acts, to do criminal acts like burglaries and stealing and embezzlements and robbing and all that kind of stuff. So more and more people are going to jail and prison. The problem is in jail and prison there's no rehabilitation. To go to jail or prison I had to have acted like an animal and in that I mean that I didn't respect the human dignity. I didn't respect my own dignity, my own humanness, nor did I respect or care for the dignity and humanness of anybody else. Including, and probably especially, my own family. My brother's been a rabbi since 1975, and he was afraid to even go and try and get a job in Cleveland, Ohio. My hometown, our hometown. Because of everything I had done. My mother was embarrassed all the time. My sister didn't know what to do. She's nine years younger than I, and nine years younger than me. Me is the correct word, right? My wife has got it in. I do it. Then I, you were right then I, I was. Whew. I'm telling you, my wife has me going crazy because I always mix them up. <laughs> um, even my daughter. Because even during this time of being a criminal and a drunk um, along the way, I had a daughter who I love. My daughter Heather I love. I loved her from the moment she was born. But even that love wasn't enough for me to stop. So what happens is I do all these things and then I go to jail or prison. They lock you up, let you out for food, maybe some exercise. And then one day they open up the gates of the prison and say, now go out and be a good boy. <laughs> it's a setup. It's a setup for, um, for all of you, taxpayers. It's a setup for the criminal. And it's a setup for the people that they're going to harm. So I was blessed. And, and this is an important part of it, in that um, in the prison I went to at the time I went to it, There was a rabbi there, a full-time rabbi. And we studied. We studied and I started to learn. Now, how many of you have gone to services at Yom Kippur? How many of you have said, for the sin which we have sinned, the the long confessional, or I'm guilty, right? (laughs) All that. How many of you look at yourselves and say, how am I guilty? See, for me, tshuva was just something you did, you know, it was something at Yom Kippur and nobody talked about it. Well, when I went to prison, I started to study it because I was hopeless and lost and broken. A couple of things happened. Um, First of all, there was a prison rabbi, and second of all, my daughter Heather wrote me a letter when she was six and a half years old. Dear Daddy, I hate you. You're a part of me when you're in prison. A part of me is in prison. And I didn't do anything to be in prison. Mm -hmm. Love, Heather. Mm -hmm. I remember those words exactly today, just as when she wrote them some 29 years, almost 30 years ago. And I know they're right because Heather's heard me speak and she nods her head. So those two things happen, and, and I, I just the only hope I had was Judaism. It was the only hope I had. I'd gone to an AA meeting, a couple, one AA meeting once, and, and it was ju- it just didn't work for me. Now probably it was because I wasn't in any frame of mind. So I started to learn about Chuva. Chuva is translated as rep- repentance. Return and response What it means Is repair change and hope Now I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but in the Talmud it says um, Rabbi Eliezer it's in Shabbat 153 I know the exact site you're supposed to cite it exactly I usually don't but I'm doing a talk later this month that I had to have the exact site for Uh, Rabbi Eliezer says you're supposed we're supposed to do tshuva one day before we die as students say who knows the day of their death He says do tshuva every day, so this repentance return response Repair change and hope has to be part of our lives every day according to the Jewish tradition I would venture to say most of you did not learn that in in Growing up in your temples and shuls in fact with all due respect to my colleagues Most of my colleagues don't even say that on Yom Kippur, that we're supposed to do it every day. So, what happened was, I started to study, and and, um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, I'm a big fan of Rabbi Heschel's, big, like huge. Um, He says that tshuva is one of the unnoticed miracles of God. That through tshuva we turn um, harms into salvation. And tshuva is something that's done in truth and remorse. How many of you have ever said I'm sorry? And then done the same thing again. (laughs) So, our prison system is not designed to teach this. Our prison system is designed to perpetuate itself. A prison guard who may or may not have a high school diploma, maybe just a GED, and may or may not have any college, makes eighty to to $100,000 a year in the state of California. They want to perpetuate this system. We have this lock up policy. It sounds great, but eventually people get out. So I think that it behooves us as a society to... I'm not saying don't punish. I'm not saying that that um, people aren't supposed to be held responsible, because I believe in personal responsibility to a tremendous extent. However, as long as we're going to hold them responsible for the crimes, let's hold them responsible for change as well. Okay.
2: Sorry, this was a few things back, Um, but. When you're talking about, you know, we're supposed to repair, change, and hope. What part of that is us, awesome, and what part of that is God? How does that work from your your frame of mind and your understanding of it?
1: Yeah, that, that had to be the first question out.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's great. It's a great question. What part of repair, change, and hope is us, and what part of repair, change, and hope is God? Um, I I believe that. Um, My experience is that you can't separate it. I went to a lot of people and did Shuva. The only way they heard me was because of God. Because of that spiritual connection. So God helps me to be unafraid of facing myself and facing you. And if not unafraid, at least more afraid of hiding than of being transparent see that's the other thing about the life of a criminal or an addict we're, we're in a constant state of hiding now my book is called recovery finding recovery in yourself in Torah because Torah was was and is the basis of my living in the third chapter of Genesis um, God says, Ayeka, where are you? Adam says, I was ashamed, so I'm hiding. Think of how often any of us are embarrassed, ashamed, afraid to say what's real for us. To say, this is who I am. And all you guys, all you people are like legitimate people, I think, and so... You know, can you imagine those of us who are scared to death of our own shadow? How hard it is. So we've been, um, we've been hiding for so long. It goes all the way back to Adam. Now the mystics say that Chuva was put into the world before the world was created because Chuva is the place where I don't hide. That's the process of not hiding. And as long as I hide, I stay addicted to whatever. We're all put on, the, uh, um, we're all created in a divine image and all of us have a different purpose. <coughs> Pardon me, in Sanhedrin um, 37a it says that we all come from one Adam for three reasons. The first reason is whoever destroys a single soul, it's as if they've destroyed an entire world. Whoever saves a single soul, it's as if they've saved an entire world. I learned this from uh, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, brilliant, brilliant, great spirit. He said, so that means that each human being has infinite worth and dignity. So I asked the question, do you treat yourself with as if you have infinite worth and dignity? Do you treat another person Within, as if they have infinite worth and dignity because as a criminal I have none nor do I see yours as an addict as an alcoholic I don't see it either as a person who needs to be right or thinks that I'm, I'm always comparing or competing I don't ever see you as a human I only see you as an adversary The second reason is so that nobody could say that my father was better than yours. So we all have equal infinite worth. The third reason, according to the Talmud, is that um, when humans mint coins from the same mold, every coin comes out the same. God mints all of us from the mold of Adam, and each one of us is unique. So everybody should carry a piece of paper around in their pocket that says the world was created for my sake. Not that that gives me entitlement, it gives me obligation. I have a unique, unique Torah, a unique word, a unique way of being that's going to enhance the world. I didn't learn that. If I did learn it, I didn't remember it. It wasn't ingrained in me. And today, um, we do a lot with um, parents and, and parenting. And there's a lot of books out about this. Um, we had uh, Julie Lithcott Haynes who, Haynes, who wrote a book, um, How to Raise an Adult. She was the uh, former admissions director at Stanford. And she said that kids come in. And, and they even know when the parents are writing the admission um, essays and kids come in and, and they're treated as investments. I mean my poor mother she could say I have a son who's a rabbi. She bragged about my brother. Her daughter was a, a, a buyer and a merchandiser for major uh, um, national chains She never bragged about her son, the criminal, though. I want you to know that. In knowing all this, in learning all this, albeit when I was 35 I started, I started to see a way of living that was different than what I had been. I went to work at Beit Shuva 28 years ago, and um, Beit Shuva has been in existence for 30 years, and we have brought Jewish wisdom and learning to Beit Shuva. So we do alternative sentencing, we go to court for people and rather than have them go to jail or prison we say let's try treatment. It's a novel idea, the courts like it because um, they don't pay us, the county doesn't pay us, and we treat the person. Of the people who come to us instead of jail or prison, Our success rate is over 80% of the people staying sober and and crime-free.
2: I used to work for a company that ran a call center in a women's prison. And as part of that, we gave them job training, and they got job experience while they were in prison. And then I started the program to teach teach them how to write resumes and interviewing skills so when they got out, they could get a real job. And they wouldn't repeat the cycle. The recidivism rate for our inmates very well. Right. You
1: know, and so, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, employment is, is, skills are very, very important. So, we have a career center and we have job training also. But really what we start with is, and we're a long-term treatment facility, people stay um, nine months to a year. We help them through a lot of transitions. And what happens is, is that we see each person for who they are. So, Everybody's got to be spoken to a little bit differently. Proverbs says, teach each child according to their own understanding. Well, if you have a cookie-cutter mold, then you're missing the, the uniqueness of the individual. It goes against a basic teaching of our Talmud. So what we need to do is we need to get our government and, and our cities and states to put rehabilitation in as part of, of um, incarceration because even though it might cost a little bit more on the front end the benefits that we reap is that people don't keep going back and people don't we cut out, we diminish greatly victims of crime so where there may not be a um, a tangible credit to the debit of 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 adding more uh, uh, staff to the jails and prisons the intangible is it less people less prisons needed and less victims kinda of makes sense to me so we do this alternative sentencing at Beit Shuva and um, we also CP pe- we, we have people in our facility who have never been to jail in prison and what I really want to do is is go more into the recovery part of it I think I've sort of laid out addiction and crime, right? Probably some of you know somebody who has an addicted um, relative or friend or might even be a family member. So for us, recovery is what's important. And what are we recovering? We're recovering our integrity. We're recovering our humanness, our humanity. We do this through truth and transparency authenticity and responsibility we call it art authenticity responsibility truth and transparency and that's what I believe life is to live life well we have to live life as Rabbi Heschel said um, as a work of art so to do that I have to let go of shame. I have to let go of being a victim. That doesn't mean people aren't victimized. It means I have to let go of the identity. It doesn't mean that I don't embarrass myself and others. It means I have to let go of the identity of shame. In fact, that's what Chuva is about. So, John Bradshaw the famous uh, um, um, psychotherapist said that shame is for who I am, guilt is for what I've done. That's what makes Chuva so powerful because Chuva says you have done something wrong and you can repair it. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of many things. And every time I'm guilty, I feel the pain that I've caused see because remorse is different than i'm sorry i'm sorry it's a throwaway line really i'm sorry i'm sorry i hurt your feelings so what's next remorse is feeling the pain of it One of the attributes of of the prophets that Rabbi Heschel speaks about is a painful rebuke. We have something called tochacha. In fact, it's part of the holiness. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. So for me to tell somebody um, that they're doing something wrong, I have to feel the pain of having to tell them and the pain they're going to experience in hearing it. When I rebuke myself, I have to feel the pain of what I've done both to me, to God, and to another person. Feeling the pain of it is much different than saying I'm sorry. So the first thing tshuva is is a cheshbon a nefesh. It's an accounting of my soul. Then I have to confess. I have to say it out loud. I can't just go into the air, you know, go out to Sedona and just say all my sins and in that great spiritual vortex everything be forgiven I have to go to the person that I've harmed and then I have to have a plan on how I'm not going to do it again so over these last thirty years Beit Tshuva engaged in the work of Chuva with thousands of people and families and only through that work have people transformed only through finding out who I'm not clearing that away can I find out who I am and be authentic? And part of my foibles are also part of my authenticity. It doesn't mean I become perfect, because I'm not. Nobody is. The Greeks believed in perfection. Jews believed in tshuva. The problem is that Jews have started to believe the Greek way is right. I'm glad. I thought that was a good line. Thank you. <laughs> and, and I'm here to say they're not. So, think about this. What our tradition says. Do tshuva one day before you die. In, in Tractate Brachot, the rabbis say that in a place where a Baal tshuva stands, where a master of tshuva stands, not even the most saintly can reach. I mean, that's a terrible line. I mean, think about this. In fact, my brother and I, my brother Neil and I, one time I was written up in a book called um, um, Stalking Elijah, Searching for Today's Mystical Masters by uh, Roger Kamenitz. He wrote The Jew and the Lotus also. Both great books. Um, and my brother calls me up, and he goes through a 20-minute rant of how unfair it is. He says, I've been a rabbi, I've been a good guy for 20 years. You know, 20, I think it was about 20 years at that time. He says, you were a shtick dreck, a criminal, a no good nick. All of a sudden, you turned good. You're a mystical master. Me, I'm just a poor schmuck. (laughs) He does this for 20 minutes. I am laughing, I'm laughing so hard I'm crying. He's crying, he's laughing so hard. And it, it was really, I mean, he wasn't upset or anything. He just, it was so funny. I said, well, Neil, you know what the Talmud says? He says, yeah. He says, I really know what the Talmud says. <laughs> so then I said to him, I said, well, you know, if you didn't think you were so perfect, then you could be a Baal Shuvah too. He just cracked up. He started laughing. He says, how come you always get it right, even when you do it wrong?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I want to tell you a little bit about how Chuba's changed me. My brother, Neil, I used to call him up and get money from him all the time under false pretenses. And, and um, he, used to, he used to wake up at least once a week from a nightmare where he had to come to California um, to identify and pick up my body. And he never knew where I was unless I was calling him for money. So in these (coughs) these 28 years um, my brother and I talk anywhere between um, four to six times a week. He never has to wonder where I'm at. My daughter, Heather, she can count on me all the time. From the guy that she hated, from the guy who couldn't take her, wasn't, wasn't around to take her to her first day of school. We do everything together. Her niece, her, her half-sister's uh, um, daughter just was in a play, and I showed up there Saturday so that uh, my wife Harriet, myself, and Heather could all sit together. So she knows her daddy cares. She knows her daddy shows up. And we talk on the phone. We talk, text, um, email, or see each other every day of the week. Those are my chubas. And what's it do for other people? It gives them hope. Okay, there's families who've come to Beit Shuba hopeless, and, and people who've come to Beit Shuba hopeless, and they leave with hope and they leave with change. Absolutely, up until the end. In fact, his tshuva to me was, I should have cut you off years before. <laughs> I mean, really, for years he never told anybody he had two brothers. We, have an older bro- we had an older brother who passed away um, in 2001 from complications of MS. Um, but he never told anybody he had a, th- a second brother. He had one brother and one sister for years. Yes. How did Heather turn the corner to finally trust you again and want to reconnect with you? How did that happen? I showed up. I showed up. I went to therapy with her. I didn't miss anything. I called her. I saw her. I just kept showing up. She would push me away. I would show up. She'd say, get out of my life. I would say, sure, and show up. I just kept showing up. In fact, that's the secret to my success. I just show up. Now, there's a lot of people that are very sad that I show up. <laughs> um, to this day, even. Uh, not <laughs> so there was this young man. Um, his mother called and said he was drunk in, in a hotel. It was a referral from somebody else. And so I sent somebody to go get him in the hotel. He shows up, and I'm talking to him. This is back in 2000. He's sober for a while. He relapses. goes to another place, comes to us again. And finally, in 2002, he calls me up. He says, I need help. I said, OK. I showed up. I took one look at him. He was in an attack of pancreatitis. And so we got him over to the hospital. And um, I said to him, you got to be done. He said, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. So we started a study. He came back to Baytubu. We started a study. He went to work um, at a catering company that was affiliated with us. And slowly, he went back into his family's business, which is tomato farming in South Florida. Six years ago, almost seven years ago now, um, in 2000, actually six and a half years ago, in 2010, he signed a, um, um, an agreement with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers for the Fair Food Act which said that um, farmers, there were companies signed on, you know, um, end users, that said the tomatoes had to be grown and and, um, that the workers had to be treated well. And in those days, 2010, 2009, they're migrant workers, so they were subjected to sexual harassment, um... Wages being stolen or cheated and all this kind of stuff his company hadn't been doing that for a while But he was the first grower in South Florida to sign on him because he signed on all the other growers had to sign on and there's a whole system of um, um, Of checks and balances they get audited every year and because of this young man John S forms The entire industry Hundreds of thousands of migrant workers have a different way of being treated. Because he did tshuva, he was broken, he was hopeless. He thought it was beyond possibility he would go back into the family business. And through his tshuva, he changed the lives of
0: literally hundreds of thousands of people. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.ValleyBaitMidrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning.
1: And that goes along with something that Reb Mayer says, for one person's chuva, the entire world endures. I mean, we have so much in our tradition about chuva, about change, about not hiding, yet, we don't talk about it enough. We don't teach it. We don't learn it. Yes?
2: When people, in your experience, when people in recovery make that much of a transformation and how they, how they walk through the world, um, how much of that is faith and how much of that is tenacity?
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, are they doing it themselves out of sheer will or is...
1: No, no. Everybody has a spiritual experience, has a psychic change. Everybody who's in recovery has a psychic change. There's, uh, um, I mean, it takes both. It takes faith, spirit, and tenacity. That's what it takes to be a Jew. Mm -hmm.
2: So you said that um, AA didn't work for you, but do you guys use
1: AA? Yes, we use the twelve steps, and, and I go to AA. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. No, that was before, um, before prison, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I believe in the anonymous programs. I differ with them. Of course, I differ with everything. You know. Um, so I brought these sheets because I wanted to um, actually give you something to do. Whether you do it here, you do it at home... That's kinda of your call. So hate is an archery term. We say Al Kate shechatanu. that's the long um confessional where we beat our breasts. It's actually an archery term means missing the mark. So these sheets have where I miss the mark and where I hit the bullseye. Because are there any accountants in the room? So if you're going to do an accounting, you have to do assets and liabilities, right? <laughs> See? I'm really good with numbers, too. that was I, I almost went into accounting in college, but <sighs> It's probably a good thing I didn't. Yes. So, so, if you look at the miss the mark, how or when did I miss the mark? That's the first step. So, here's the thing, though, okay? In order f- to miss the mark, I have to tell myself something that makes it okay to do it. How many of us knowingly would do something to hurt s- themselves or others? One.
2: I have. I'm just being honest. I have
1: in the past. Right, there's a payoff. So something made it right. So with my daughter, I'll give you Heather there is an example. Where I missed the mark was, I abandoned her. Basically, I went to prison. and I was drunk. How long were you in prison I did um, about six and a half years uh, on the installment plan. So for her, the first eight years of her life. I probably did um, about five and a half, in and out, in and out. Um, what made it right? I was st- stealing and hustling because I wanted to make sure that she had enough money and, and, and she could, I could buy her whatever she wanted. That was the story I told myself. So all of us have a story.
2: Quite a bit of familiarity with 12-step programs. Is this the four-step inventory that you guys
1: use? Well, this is uh, um, four through nine, yeah. Oh,
2: okay. So you don't use just like right out of the big book?
1: Yeah, no, we do that too. We do that too. You do? Yeah.
2: So this is... um,
1: This is my Jewish way of doing it.
2: Uh, Oh. To get to 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 the Shubha.
1: Right. Every every week we do... um shuva groups, I mean, everybody goes out to AA meetings and has sponsors, et cetera. And we do this. Okay. It's both and. The only correct answer, Jewish answer to an either-or question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> so. When you say you do this, does
1: everyone, I don't know how many residents are there. 130. The minimum, or is it many groups? Many groups. Many groups each week. You're welcome. Yes, Reva? Yes, sir. You said the state doesn't pay. How do you get your funding? Um, some insurance money. We charge families of um, uh, people under twenty-six because we figure that they would pay for college. So, um, but anybody over twenty-six or families that can't afford, we whatever they can afford. We're a Jewish charity. We fundraise for $5 million a year. There's a gala in
2: January?
1: Yeah, we have a big fundraiser in, in January. And we have to raise $5 million every year to meet our budget. We have an $11 million budget now. Wow. It's crazy. It's crazy. Started out, my, my wife Harriet Rosetto started it before we were married, before we knew each other. She was the only employee in 1987. <laughs> now we have 100. Wow. Yes, sir?
0: Do you have a medical staff?
1: We have psychiatrists who come in from uh, uh, UCLA.
0: And is the process that you detox and you know, take, or...?
1: Yeah, we don't do it detox. We don't do detox. It's
2: so, um, your relapse and recidivism rates sound a lot lower. Than a lot of the private um, rehabs out there, um, what, what do you think makes difference if they're using similar programs and making everyone go to
1: 12-step and all of that? Well, because again, okay, so, so um, this, everybody, we start out with Torah study every morning, everybody goes to Torah study, um, and each person has a spiritual counselor, an addiction counselor, and a therapist. So spiritual counselors are advocates for the soul. I used to be the only one. I used to see 70, 80 people a week. It depends.
2: And the addiction counselor and the therapist are two separate people in your
1: life? Yes. So when I say it depends, it depends. Some people have a slip and it's caused by some event and some people just we don't think we can help it it, so it really depends on the connection and and the circumstances we take each case on its own merits yes sir.
2: I I have to step out I have two quick questions
1: do you have to identify yourself as Jewish to be eligible? no we're a Jewish faith-based non-sectarian that's how crazy we are (laughs) Well, people come to us from all over the country. In fact, um, we've had people from Canada. We had somebody from India. We had somebody from. We've had a couple of people from Israel. So, people come to us from all over. Yes, ma'am. Are you a lock facility, or do you have any black components, and have do you interact? Is there any commitments, or how do you interact with the prison system? Well, with the prison system, uh, we interact because we go visit. And, and we uh, see people in county jail, Los Angeles County Jail, we're a social service agency. Um, so we, we go into the attorney room and things like that. We are not a locked facility. We don't have any locked parts of our facility. People want to be there, they stay. They don't want to be there, they leave. Have
2: yes, any ma'am. Are there therapists, um, alternative therapists, like expressive arts, music, dance?
1: Oh, well, no. Well, wait. Wait.
2: Wait.
1: You said our therapists. We have an entire music and recovery program that is not run by therapists. It's run by musicians and me, um, where we have a recording studio. We have a band. Um, we have a music publishing. We have... Um, Art groups going on all day long, and um, we even have theater. They're just not therapists that are leading them.
2: So the would do a different
1: job. I understand, but none of them want to volunteer. All of our therapists volunteer or are, in, um, are, are getting hours. We couldn't afford it otherwise. So you, just su- you
2: supervise it
1: your... Yes, oh. yes. Well, trauma is part of it. I mean, trauma is part of the recovery process. So, um, we actually have somebody who volunteers who comes and does EMDR. And some of our people are trained in it. Some of our staff are trained in it. So, you know, we do all the therapies. And, bottom line, it's one soul touching another. It's One, one soul touching another soul. So... Here's the thing: when people know that somebody really cares, it changes their outlook and changes. uh, um, It's the start of the change of their belief system.
2: How many of your counselors have been there, done that? Because program I'm affiliated with, everyone has been an addict or an alcoholic, and the kids, young persons. How many of our
1: counselors? I I would say. I would say, um, all of our counselors, all of our program facilities, see we hire from within. So, um, I'm trying to think right now. Um, of the spiritual counselors, um, four out of the eight are in recovery. So, a lot of them. Most of, 70% of our staff are, are graduates of our program and probably 80-85% of our staff are, are in recovery. And
2: those that are under 26 do you have a parent program? We have a
1: parent program, program for the, one, the ones over 26 talk and need the parent program. <laughs> I mean I go places and somebody says, my son has a problem, my boy, really, how old's your boy? 50. <laughs> What's the problem? He still lives at home. (laughs) (coughs) So, yeah, no, we have a complete parent program. We have physical fitness. We have uh, um, um, mind-body. We do all of that.
0: It's interesting
2: also. I have a parent facilitator, and we have our parents go through the 7- to
1: 12-step program. Yeah, we send them all to to Al-Anon. We send them all to Alanana. Do you work with
2: um, food addicts
1: and sex addicts as well? Yep, we do food addicts, sex addicts, you name it. They're an addict, we got them. We get heat for all of it, so you know why not? <laughs> yes, sir. Sir, you had your hand up. Well, actually, I was just going to ask about
2: the eating disorders, and that, that she asked it because
1: I Yeah, I mean, eating disorders. Um, it depends, to tell you the truth. Okay, it depends on how severe it is. Um, Severe anorexia, we've never, it takes a a different model. But we have people who are um, poly addicted. A lot of, of especially women, um, have used drugs to manage their um, eating disorder. So we'll send them to uh, some eating disorder clinics that we know that will take our residents for nothing.
2: But you don't
1: work the twelve steps around food issues. No, we do. We do. Yeah, we go to OA. We have how and you know all that. But I'm saying that for severe eating disorders, we we might house the people and send them out for um, Mm -hmm. extra treatment. No problem. Can I hold off on that? Yes, ma'am, you had a question. Well, if it's wet brain, we don't. We don't. We can't handle wet brain. We we just can't handle it if it's too far gone. I mean, I, I just so you understand, okay. When I quit drinking, I was drinking a gallon of booze a day. Um, so our experience has been that that um, that sobriety, abstinence, um, which is why we're a long-term program. 'Cause it takes a while for everything to start to come back and um into focus. So specifically, um, no. You know, I mean and yet generally yes. Well I'm just thinking about like the brain
2: mapping where they say that an addict's brain doesn't get oxygen in certain places and they're not functioning at a high level.
1: I function at a high we got addicts who are functioning very high
2: levels. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it depends on what you mean by functioning. Now, I understand <laughs> some of the brain mapping. I, I have... The neurofeedback and- right, right. Yeah, we've done neurofeedback at times. You know, we send people out for that. Yeah. I mean, we can't, do, we can't do everything because we don't have money to do everything. And, um, like I say, after a period of abstinence... Our experience has been that, that, that it kind of comes back once the oxygen gets back into the different chambers of the brain.
2: Is your model harm reduction or abstinence?
1: Abstinence. We're abstinence based. We don't do uh, Suboxone. See that's the other thing, okay, with this opioid crisis. Now, I'm not saying it's not a crisis, it's a crisis. However, it's been a crisis for a long time. What made it a crisis, with all due respect, is that white middle class and rich kids started to die. So um, now, so what are they doing? Suboxone. Suboxone keeps you loaded. And the recommended dosage from Samsha will keep you buzzed. Who's making money off of Suboxone? Who caused the opioid crisis with uh, uh, um, the prescription drugs?
2: Yes.
1: Now the government hasn't figured that out yet, but you know, we're trying. The
2: work what? The same.
1: Yeah. Well, no, methadone keeps you a little bit more loaded. So we, we believe in absence, and we have had great, great success with absence. We do send people out chronic relapses for Vivitrol shots. I'll tell you why. Vivitrol is uh, naltrexone. Um, the reason we'll do that for a period of 90, 90 to 180 days is because if they're a chronic relapser, then if they use with the, with the Vivitrol in them, nothing happens. And um, they only have to make a decision once a month. With Suboxone, they have to make a decision every day. So we like to play the odds. Um, So to answer your question, surrender and powerlessness. Rabbi uh, Soloveitchik in his book um, Lonely Man of Faith says, Redemption, and I call it surrender, happens when humble humans allow themselves to be confronted and defeated by a higher and truer being. I say a higher truth. So, surrender and powerlessness is not something that's new to Judaism. It's built into the fabric. I mean, Sinai was, we said, Na Seven we'll do and we'll understand later. That's surrender and powerlessness. So, the other thing about powerlessness is that you have to, um, here's the paradox. As soon as I said, um, I'm powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable, I could stop drinking. And get my life together. Now, I have the power of choice. What I'm powerless over is as soon as I take a drink, everything starts to go a little bit out of focus. Now, that's not true for every person. But for me, I could handle two drinks. If I had the third, I was drinking the bottle. Do you know how often I stopped at two?
2: <laughs>
1: right. So, what happens is, is it... I? as the second step says, came to believe a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. For me, it was that there's a higher and a truer being. There's a higher truth. One of the exercises I have people do is um, when do you defeat a higher truth and when are you defeated by a higher truth? See, the mistake a lot of people make is that, um, again, I learned this from Rabbi Heschel, that religion is, is, is the answer to the questions. And religion also supplies us with the que- right questions. <laughs> Most of us have the right answers to the wrong questions. I told you about this psychic pain I felt inside, this constant war between my earthly inclination and my divine inclination. So my question was, how do I get out of this? How do I stop feeling this? Booze was a good way to stop feeling it. And I said, how do I get through this? How do I deal with this war inside of me, I would have had a different answer. Most people have the right answers to the wrong question. In fact, Reb Nachman, the Hasidic uh, uh, Master, said, what's the question this experience is the answer for? What's the question my life is the answer for? So going back to these sheets, which is one of the ways I, I, I deal with powerlessness and surrender, I have to take a look, after I know the story I told myself, I have to take a look at who is impacted, including God and myself. This was a tremendous uh, um, awareness to me that what I do impacts God. Remember, God calls out. Rabbi Heschel wrote a beautiful book, God in Search of Man. God searching for me. Am I turning around and saying, here I am? And then how are they impacted? This is where the remorse comes in. I have to feel the pain. So with my daughter, with Heather, how she was impacted was she learned not to trust. I stole her ability to trust from her. Whatever I went to jail for, that's the crime. Then I have to take a look. What did I learn from all this? So I learned that I matter. I learned Heather matters. I learned that showing up uh, um, is important. I learned that I don't have to be. That I have to stop believing the lies I tell myself. And then, what's my tshuva? How am I going to make it right? And what's my plan for not doing it again? So the way I made it right was. I've had conversations with my daughter, even when she was eight and a half years old. I had a conversation with her. And I confessed to her everything I did. And I made her know that. I understood how hurt she was by me. And I've spent these last 28 years making sure that she knows I always show up. And she can count on me. So when she has a problem, she calls me. So then I have to do the same thing with the bullseye. I have to see where I've hit the mark. What made that right? Who was impacted? How they were impacted? What did I learn? And how am I going to enhance it? This is the way all of us can learn and can, can be better, one grain of sand better tomorrow than we were today. And that's really what our job is. It's how we don't hide from ourselves, hide from God, hide from other people. So I said I'm married to the founder of Beit Shuba now, Harry Rosetto. Um, we've been married for 26 years. We don't hide from each other. She wishes. She wishes I would be quieter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And 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 we don't hide. And together with the staff of all long all the whole staff that we've had all these years, the different staffs, we have saved thousands of lives, and we've put thousands, tens of thousands of families back together. So, it's not that hard for you to do for yourself. Doing this kind of work, I believe, will lead you to a healthier and holier family. Yes?
2: Curiosity. What are your credentials to do what you do?
1: Me? Mm -hmm. I'm a rabbi. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, you you know, credentials is a big thing today. Here's the biggest credential I have. I know how to be an advocate for the soul, and I can see the soul and the humanity in another person. I know a lot of people with a lot of degrees who can't do that. So we need to get away from credentials and evidence-based treatment. I have evidence-based treatment. There's people who are living today because of the program that we have. That, to me, is evidence. So So I want to thank you. If you have any other questions, I'm open for them, but I want to thank you. This is sort of the end of my talk.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmadrash.org and donating to Valley Bet to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education.